You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. This episode is brought to you by you. You, the person at home or on a run. You, the person listening as they commute. You, the person listening and running errands. You, the person that believed in us and enjoyed our content. This is episode 100. And this whole thing would not be possible without you. From Lewis and myself, Joe, we are eternally grateful for you. Thousands of you turn in every week. And there is no exaggeration to say that this is the most fulfilling thing that we have ever done in our lives. We are going to keep pushing for the transformational content from the people that have it and to get it to the people that need it. In this episode today, Lewis and I sat down for a conversation and reflect on the lessons that we learned from interviewing 140 plus of the world's most interesting people. You will get behind-the-scenes stories with features about guests like Robert Greene and Patrick Bet David, and also our plans going forward. To you, the listener, right now, I simply say thank you and stay tuned. I hope you enjoy episode 100. 100 episodes. Lewis is joining me. Lewis, how do you look back on this, my man? It's crazy, man. I think back to episode one now. Actually, before episode one, I... I got us to record this audio file. It was about half hour long. Um, I just wanted to talk to you about the idea of the rat race and wanting more. We made it. We didn't do anything with it. I thought it was so good. I tried to convince you to start a podcast. It didn't happen for a while. Um, that recording is God knows we're lost in the ether, but look where we are now, 100 episodes later. Look where we are. I think like a good place to start this would be just to... Sort of just tell people what we're going to talk about today. There's no guest on today's episode. This is going to be Lewis and I. We're going to reflect on this 100 episodes. It's a huge milestone. We've doubted ourselves. Other people have doubted us. But here we are in this episode today. We're going to look back from start to finish. What we've personally learned from interviewing, what, 140 people? We've still got so many episodes to go. Yeah. We'll be giving you guys some behind-the-scenes stories that you would never have heard, including people like Robert Green, <laughs> Patrick <laughs> Bet, David. We're going to talk about what we've learned, the guests that have had the biggest impact on us, what we've changed our minds about. So I guess, Lewis, where should we start with all this? Where should we kick us off to? Oh, I think we should start with a bit of context. 
just for my own personal interest. If mm-hmm. I think, if I throw it back to the episodes, the the early ones from the vault, um, before any guest came on the show, what was the feeling back then when we were recording? You know, we can hold our hands up now. You know, we've come a long way, but we can hold our hands up and say the first two episodes were recorded on an iPhone, parked in Tesco car park, in a car. And we were just, do you remember those days? Just researching topics and trying to give as much info as we can. What do you remember about those days? And, you know, did you learn much at the time without having any guests on? Yeah, I think this is one of the key things, right? So when I look back and literally you and me, we were sitting in Tesco car park recording the first few episodes on our, on our phone, right? Just think about how crazy it is. I mean, look at someone like like Tom Billy, right? I mean, this guy starts up Quest. He's got a Beverly Hills mansion. He puts it all into his living room and he just, just carries on. You and me, we were sat in Tesco car park with an iPhone. <laughs> we were recording on your laptop for some other episodes, which didn't even work. You know, the laptop would keep crashing and we go, oh no, it's, it's crashed. We're going to <laughs> we're gonna have to go back through it. When I look back at that, we probably made every mistake that two, yeah, every mistake two people starting a podcast could possibly make. In fact, if any of you guys want to know the list of mistakes not to make, just, I mean, just come to us. There is so, so <laughs> many of them which we've made. It's also important to know that when you're thinking about starting something like we did, don't be afraid of where you'll start because just look at us. I mean, we figured it out. It took us quite a while. I mean, it took us hundreds, maybe even a thousand hours before we actually started, things started clicking into place. But you learn as you go type of thing. So that's how I reflect back on it. And I'd, I'd add on a bit of advice there that if anyone's thinking there's so many programs out there on how to start the perfect podcast from episode one, and I I think in an industry like this or whatever you're doing, it doesn't have to be podcasting. So whatever uh, the person listening to is is um, is doing, I think that there's no better school than the school of hard knocks. I think that the mistakes are they're vital. I think of the mistakes we made, you know, using a laptop that just deleted half the episode. I remember when we first had our breakthrough episode with Beth Comstock. We couldn't celebrate until the laptop had finished processing it. And even then, there were just chunks of sentences missing from the podcast and we had to sew it all together somehow. I think of, you know, guests telling us no. I mean, a great example, Michael Sirwa. I reached out to him 18 months ago to um, this month. And he said, no, you're just not big enough. And that hurt my ego. I came back to him set like 18 months later saying, hi, Michael. Here's the people I've interviewed since you've said no. And he was begging to come back on the show. <laughs> I think that, you know, those failures, those hard knocks just made us even better and better. And that's using a microphone that I had from a Nintendo Wii game when I was 10 um, and holding an iPhone up to it and calling the guest on their mobile to now having all the software and having, you know, the, the perfect setups. I think there's no better school than the school of hard knocks. No better school than the hard knocks. And one other thing that just comes to my mind is I remember we were recording this one episode and we'd, we'd scheduled it and we wrote out a pretty good episode as well. 
and we were sitting in this car park just about to record on my iPhone <laughs> and we recorded an episode and it was it was pretty good as well you know it was probably it would have been our best episode to date I mean it was just at least half hour yeah it was at least half an hour it was a, for that stage it was a pretty good episode mm. the episode finishes I think you and me were going scuba diving or something we were on a scuba diving course we, were, we had half hour to get to the scuba diving set <laughs> Yeah, so we're going scuba diving after. I'm looking at this recording in my hand, and we tried and tried a few different ones, and eventually we got it going. And I clicked delete on the wrong one. I ended up deleting the the file which we'd recorded. And I told you, and I was like, Lou, I've, I've just deleted the file, mate. <laughs> and at that point, you know, I was thinking, you know, is this actually for me? Is this going to go anywhere? Is this going to go anywhere? But, like, I look back, and I think that from where we were, it seems impossible to imagine that we would get it. It just doesn't seem possible. You know, the you know all the live touch, the emails which we've had, the, the content, the guests. I mean, looking at, you know, some of the episodes which we've got out, the interviews which we've done, billionaires, astronauts, neuroscientists. I mean, we just had David Buss on the show arguably one of the most influential psychologists of all time, sports stars, athletes. I mean, you know, we got Bruce Buffer coming on the show, the UFC guy next month. It just doesn't seem real. I think, just to touch on that, I think the magic behind that is taking it out one, or it was taking it out one guest at a time and just trying to raise the bar. The magic was that we just kept trying to you know, we stayed humble. We didn't reach for the stars straight away, but we just tried to push our leverage just a little bit higher each time, each time and find those needle movers. If you told me two and a half years ago when we were recording on iPhone that we'd be getting, you know, the likes of Bruce Buffer and Patrick Bet David and these other huge names on the show, I just wouldn't have believed it. But mm. I think that just taking it one step at a time and every time you get a new reference point, it was Comstock, you know, then it was Robert Green. Mm. Uh, you know, David Buss and Bruce Buffer, and um, you you move through the rankings. So I think that when I look back at that early journey, I think the two things come to my mind, and that's don't be afraid of starting something, and also don't be afraid of being terrible or looking stupid at the start. It's like what Shane Parrish told me on I think it was episode eighty, and Shane said, "Just don't be afraid to look stupid." stupid. Which, by the way, you know, I, I want to add a quick caveat. If you guys have enjoyed the episodes, please, please, please go and leave us a <laughs> go and leave us a rating and review because that that really does help us a lot. Should we dive into the lessons we've learned from the yeah, major guests? Absolutely, man. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I want to throw it to you straight away because okay. I think you know just to, just to touch back on the journey, even. Um, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. You know, we, me and you know now that we went through a few phases where we were maybe a bit disheartened and there was even a point where we had a little bit of an argument, um, you know, because of these things don't work out. And there was a period of time in which you went on a rampage and you were you were, you were interviewing more guests than I could keep up, uh, keep up with. And so I had to make up the numbers later on. So I want to throw it to you. Um, You've interviewed, you know, a tremendous amount of people and a lot of the intellectuals, so to speak. Um, I think I've tend, I tend to take on the the storytellers, or that's what I tend to gravitate to. But you 
obviously you are a student of psychology now you tried to take on these these titans of the psychology world even so it interests me to see what your favorite lessons you've learned are so i before you know before we throw it to me what's the first lesson that comes to your mind well it's interesting because when i look back i will touch on decision making and these mental models but when i was actually thinking about this this morning i was thinking back to guests that we've had in the sort of storytelling business and let me give you four Nick Yaris, BJ Miller, Eric Salzenstein, and Noah Galloway. Of those four, two of them have only two limbs, and then the other two were in prison on long-term sentences. I mean, Nick Yaris, what was he? Was was he 13 days away from being put to death? Yeah, almost so, you know, 20 to 30 years on death row for a crime he didn't commit. Yeah, he was, he was in prison for 22 years for a crime that he didn't commit. Just a crazy episode we did with Nick. And then Eric, again, I mean, he was in prison. We've interviewed a number of people that have been to jail. So I think that the number one lesson which comes to my mind is when I look at the people which we've spoken to, the commonality seems to be that there have been so many people which have had massive, massive hardships, whether that's losing limbs or going through terrible unimaginable heartaches i mean almost being put to death noah galloway talking about being shot at and the ptsd and i think that they've got an ability to do two things the first is the ability to reframe an event nick Mm. yaris i mean what did he say he said he'd done 22 years in prison he comes on the show and says it was the best thing that ever happened to me he says i would have been dead without it he said i would have been killed on the streets i would have been selling drugs B.J. Miller, he's a doctor at a palliative care uh, hospice. He comes on the show and says to us, I don't regret it. Uh, It made me more empathetic. It made me more compassionate to my people. It gave me a new outlook on life. I've I've faced death. Nothing else frightens me. I can just live from that reference point. Eric Salzenstein, he goes to jail and he starts changing the lives there. He doesn't like the prison system, so he starts changing it within. He goes on to do a TED Talk, become a high-performance coach. Noah Galloway, he lost his limbs at war, and he said that he wouldn't change it because of the battle, which that it made him the man that he is today. When I think about those, I think that the big lesson I've learned on a personal level is that whatever you are going through in life is to find a way to reframe that in your mind, to reframe and forgive yourself. That seems to be a common thing. These people, they have the ability to reframe whatever's happened to them, whether that's a breakup, a loss, a trauma, mm-hmm. and then also to forgive yourself for the mistakes that you've made. Mm. I think, and it, it's, I love the fact you've brought these examples up because this was going to be, when I, you know, this morning when I was thinking of my lessons, um, Nick Yaris came straight to my mind. And you talk about someone who reframes an event. I think he's the ultimate example of it. Um, I mean, we talked to him about freedom, right? And I'll never forget that episode just because of, you know, the how much it meant to Nick to finally be able to talk about the idea of freedom. I listened back to some of the episode earlier and he, he sounded emotional because he said he never thought he'd have the platform to or someone be interested in talk about the idea of freedom. People just want to know the gory details of prison. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get to that when we get to the funnier side of the podcast. Um, <laughs> but it's the way he spoke about 
reframing the event and what it's done for his perspective now man he was talking about how sometimes he's driving his taxi at night for minimum wage and he looks up to the sky sees the stars and he starts crying because he thought i there was a point in time where i i never thought i'd see these stars i thought you know they'd taken them away from me forever man he said this thing he said my freedom is the extent of how much i love life so he said no matter what your circumstance whether you know something traumatic has happened to you whether you're 22 years into being you know on death row you have a decision you have the free mental choice to block out the ugliness to block out the hardship and turn around and embrace whatever scrap of good is there and i think he's he's the ultimate example i mean you you listen to his story said that all that time spent in prison he he would he would study books. He read a thousand books while he was in prison. He um, he said he practiced his elocution and his vocabulary for the day he was in court. And you know he gave this account of himself. And the judge said to him, "Nick, what university did you go to?" He said, "I I didn't finish high school." And you know I think he carries this with him today as well. And this is I, I this is what I took from him. He said that. Him and his wife don't have a lot. And in fact, at the moment, I know they're going through a lot. They've just been evicted. So, you know, on the subject, God bless. And I wish Nick all the best. He says he he has the most romantic love affair with his wife because that's what he's decided to imagine in his mind. And I'll finish this lesson with a quote that he gave that just is stuck with me and gives me goosebumps. He said, if you are a thoughtful person, you can contrive the most beautiful things without actually having anything. And I think that's a beautiful way to, to, to say that, you know, like you said about uh, reframing events, no matter what's happening externally, you always have the power internally to look at it through a different perspective. And I'd, I'd love to know, are there any examples you could point to where you could say, okay, I've taken that reframe and I've reframed something in my own life? Absolutely. Um, okay, so the first thing that comes up uh, in my mind is um, back in university. So my first year of university was, it was a good experience. It was fun. It was everything you thought a first year of university would be. Um, I got to my second and third year of university and I realized that I wasn't in love with the course. Um you know, a few personal problems started to arrive at the time. And I wasn't in a great place mentally in my second and third year. And there were times where I really wanted to to give up. And there were times where I I actually had to go and see the university counsellor because I was in such a, a mental state um, because of some things I won't go into. But it was a horrific time for me and I talk a lot now about how much or I used to talk a lot about how much I regret uh, going to university because of you know those times weren't great to go through and I really didn't enjoy those two years but now looking back on it I reframe it in a way that I lived my entire life up until that point comfortably I lived in my parents house um 
my parents were were great in the sense that they'd always look after me. Um, I lived quite comfortably, and it was just a culture shock in a way as well. And now looking back on it, I think that I am such a self-sufficient and individually minded and an open like I'm very open-minded and I can think for myself and I have all these own opinions I form now and I think I'm a completely different person to what I was and I think that if it wasn't for those two years of hardship that really brought me to my knees and you know my the, the extent of, of my mental state I don't think I'd be you know the person I am today and I certainly don't think I'd be able to talk about some of the topics I talk about on this podcast so I now see that as an absolute blessing and as in disguise and you know all the the hardships and all the times I felt really really sad I wouldn't change them for the world now because of what they've done for me so I think that's a perfect example and if I throw it back to you is there an example of how reframing a situation has helped you yeah I love that example man and I think that what we're talking about by you is what jack canfield talks about in the success principles i think it's like chapter six and he talks about becoming an inverse paranoid it's sort of cultivating this belief that if you can take a lesson from something then your biography doesn't have to be your destiny so the one example which comes to my mind is i think back to this one relationship which i had and and I think that I left the relationship feeling more like I'd let myself down than anything. It, it was, I didn't act like the person that I wanted to be at times. I, you know, I left and I was very, very critical of myself. And I think that I reframed that in a way in which I said to myself, okay, if I can forgive myself for the mistakes in which I made, if I can take those lessons, take the careless and the selfish ways in which i acted i'm not saying this was anything bad but you know there was times in which i wasn't particularly proud of myself then i can use those lessons it's, it's exactly the same as we did with those podcasts i mean everyone starts off at ground zero right and then you get better and better and better as you go to now where i think i'm in a place where i mean i look back and, and i seem almost unrecognizable you know i look back and i think was that even me? <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, was that even me? Bringing this full circle, I would say that that ability to forgive yourself and to reframe. I know that Tony Robbins has this question where he gets people to ask themselves, how is the worst thing that ever happened to you actually the best? <laughs> and it's one of those questions where you think, okay, you know, that's a bit of a trite thing. You know, what if I've experienced loss at a great level? What if people have died? Okay, you know, let's look at that person that you really care about has died example. And what lessons can you take from their life to go forward? Could you take any lessons which could prevent future disasters? I think that's a really, you know, great exercise. So yeah, so bringing that full circle, I would say the ability to reframe negative or bad events and then also the ability to forgive yourself. It's like I did an interview quite recently with Tal Ben-Shahar. Phenomenal interview. Tal was the Harvard professor into positive psychology. And his classes had the most amount of people in any class in Harvard history. 
I mean, people were pouring into this guy's class. He was getting hundreds of people in every, you know, lecture. And he said to me that he wanted to imagine, in terms of the reframe now, he wanted people to imagine that you're in a 4 by 4 relay with yourself. But every runner in this race going round the track is you. But here's the caveat. You are at the front of the race, the you now, and then behind you've got you from a year ago, you from two years ago, you from ten years ago. So you've got four different runners all at different stages in your life. So basically, as you, you're running this race, let's say you're running this race and to your right, the people are in front of you and the guy behind you is running a slow time. You're not going to turn around and start, you know, shouting at the guy because he's he's not, you know, pulling his way. <laughs> You're just going to try to do your best you can. I think it's a really helpful metaphor to think that we never wake up and go, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to make some bad decisions today. I actually had a debate with Daniel Everton about this the other day. I truly believe that when we look back through our lives, we did the best that we knew how to do at that time for the knowledge mm-hmm. we had, the experiences. So if there are things which you were having trouble forgiving yourself about, I would say, yeah, to the lesson one from this journey that we could tie this up <laughs> is forgive yourself and then reframe. Uh, perfect, man. I absolutely love that's been brought full circle. Um, a fantastic lesson and... I think a great way to kick off the lessons portion of the podcast. So I've offered up that, that Nick Yarsk example has led to this, um, this debate. What is the next lesson that sticks out in your mind and you think the freedom pact has taught me? Mm. So when I look at the guests in which we've had in particularly recently, I mean, David Buss, Shane Parrish, these guys I've noticed are all, expert decision makers the advice in which i could offer from this i think i spent so long trying to figure things out for myself i wanted to go through relationships and and learn as i go i wanted to start businesses and i was naive to other advice when i interviewed shane parish i delved into the work in which he's doing at fs.blog at farnham street which is a phenomenal resource shane makes the case of the most optimal way to learn is to cultivate the art of figuring out what other people have already mastered. When I think about a practical lesson in which I could offer from this, it would be, look at what we've done on the show. We essentially have made war with a multitude (laughs) of counsellors, right? We're trying to build our lives around the good ideas of others, essentially. We've sort of surrendered to trying to build lives for ourselves. And there's a an effect in psychology, and it's called the Lindy effect. And this basically says that however long an idea has stood the test of time is probably how long it will continue to do so. So if a book has been out two years, it'll probably last another two. If a mm. book like Marcus Aurelius' Meditations has been around a thousand years, it'll probably last another thousand. <laughs> this is why I can't understand this fascination with the new and the noteworthy I can understand why you'd want to be at the cutting edge type thing. But in terms of actually building your life around good advice, then I don't think you can go wrong with timeless wisdom. It's like what Charlie Munger says, right? It's (laughs) the pursuit of building worldly wisdom. Mm. So when you look at the people on the show that we've had, 
how has it helped you to build better decisions? Mm. So the first person that just jumps to mind is Bradley. Um, Mm. I remember Brad saying to me, if you can show me someone who makes flawless choices, I'll show you the most successful person in the world. So what he was getting at there is that success just comes down to the simple choices we make in life, which lead to the bigger things. So he gave this example of people say, why is this happening to me? Well, it's simple. It's because of the choices you made. Mm. And he gave this example of um, an overweight person in hospital lying in their hospital bed. You know, they have to go undergo surgery because of, uh, you know, weight issues. And they're saying, why God, why me? And Brad said, well, it's because you made a decision not to follow a, a normal balanced diet. It's because you made a decision not to exercise and keep your heart healthy. Mm. He said that, you can trace literally everything that happens to you back to a choice you made. Nothing happens to you out of happenstance then. Everything that happens to you comes back to a choice you made. So if you think about something negative in your life, there's a reason why it happened. If you go back far enough, there'll be a series of small decisions you made which led you to that point. Success all comes back the little choices you make so when i think about decision making now i think of you know i used to think about it in the big picture i used to think you know these big decisions i remember when i read um awaken the the giant within tony robbins talked about the power of decision making and you can you know no matter how big a problem was whether you were addicted to to cigarettes you had the power to make this one decision and it would be gone forever, and it was that easy. And you know, as much as I love Awaken the Giant Within, and I love Tony Robbins, I think that Bradley said it even better, that it's not about those massive choices, not about those big things. Success always comes back to the little choices you make, and then it leads to the big things. Absolutely, absolutely. On this point, I think that there have been certain decision-making tools or mental models which is the popular term now which is a blueprint for making better decisions the mental models are the apps and the first mental model which i think about i read this story about jeff bezos and he said that he looks at decisions in two ways he looks at them in terms of reversible and irreversible decisions in the sense that he wants to make reversible decisions as quickly as possible He doesn't want to waste any time on them. So I think about that as like you're at DFS or you're looking online at a sofa and it says, okay, you've got a free return within seven days and you want to know how it looks. A reversible decision would be you could go and buy that sofa, try it, see how it looks, and if it doesn't fit, then you can just return the sofa, right? And then he thinks about it in terms of like irreversible decisions. The irreversible decisions, he says that he wants to spend a load of time on. And when I think back about the people that have been on the show, uh, David Buss, Shane Parrish in particular, they've both mentioned that they use time as a major tool to make better decisions. And I'm going to give you an example which I know you're going to enjoy. 
I want to give you an example from The Simpsons, which I actually saw earlier, <laughs> right? So I was watching this episode of The Simpsons, and I, I, I wish I could quote what episode it was. But basically, in this episode, Homer Simpson decides to go and buy a gun. When he goes to buy a gun, he's really riled up. So Homer goes to the gun store, and the guy, you know, he talks to him about all these different options he can have, and he says, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll buy them all. And at the time, Homer's really annoyed. So he goes to the guy, right, okay, I'll take it all. And the guy goes, perfect, come back in five days and pick this up. And Homer replies, five days? But I'm angry now. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So, And it just goes to show that in five days, he's probably got a different, uh, yeah, a different take on it. And if someone's got, like me, people-pleasing tendencies. You've got an outlook of wanting to say yes to everybody. You want to keep everybody happy. This is what I've been doing, is just take 30 minutes before you say yes to something. Take an hour before you say yes to something. Think to yourself, do I actually want to do this? Is this something that I can actually do? Or if I do it, will I be more bitter and resentful about doing it afterwards? So, yeah, so I would say that that would be the first thing in terms of making better decisions is almost using time as a tool to make better decisions, right? Absolutely. And when you said that, I, you know, this is scalable. It doesn't have to just be massive decisions like like buying guns, for example. I think back to it actually made something pop up to mind that happens almost every day in, in this house. So I'll eat dinner, okay? And I can eat a lot, right? Mm. But. You know, me and my girlfriend, Hannah, will dish up, you know, a normal sized dinner and I'll eat it and I'll straight away turn to her and say, I, I, I could eat more. I could eat more. And bear in mind, I'm trying to, you know, diet efficiently at the moment. And she always says to me, well, give it 45 minutes because it takes 45 minutes to, you know, realize whether it's an impulse or, or a decision you want to make. And every time after I wait 45 minutes, I don't want her anymore because, you know, that that me that was salivating for more food, that's gone and I have a whole different perspective. So I absolutely agree with you. The time and stepping back from a situation sometimes can give us the greatest perspective. On this point, I, since we're talking about uh, Bezos, his net worth is, is just rising up and up and it's just crazy how much money this guy actually has. He says that another decision-making tool which he uses is does a Stephen Covey and he begins with the end in mind. So whenever he's making a personal decision or a business decision, he thinks about it in terms of how will I feel about this when I'm 80? Will this be something that I'll regret when I'm 80? He calls it risk minimization. But I suppose when you think about this, I mean, this is, you know, a tricky one, right? Because you could say to yourself, well, do I want to go and try out some heroin now? So when I'm 80, you know, I won't, (laughs) you know, I I want to say to myself, I wasn't able to do it. But I think that this is particularly applicable to personal relationships. So uh, when you look at the, you know, that episode we did with Brawny Way, so many of those regrets of the dying, they were all related to personal relationships, right? It was like saying to yourself, if you're afraid to go and approach someone or if you're afraid of having a difficult conversation, asking yourself, you know, how will I feel about this when I'm 80? I think that's just such a fantastic way of 
getting over that fear and just doing what you want to mm. do. I, you know, I'm a big fan of it. Um, do you have anything else on decision making? Yeah, no. While while we're talking about mental models, um, mm. as we call it, I just want to touch on something that we have to be careful of. And this, I, this is this thing they call a mental models. The map is not the territory. So our mind creates maps of reality in order to understand it because the only way we can process the complexity of reality is through this abstraction okay but we don't understand the limits and we're so reliant on abstraction that we'll frequently use the incorrect model or the wrong way of doing something because we think that any model is a much better decision than no model so on top of that, then the human brain will naturally take shortcuts to make you know sense with surroundings. And there was this quote I found when I was looking into mental models, and it's by Charlie Munger, mm. uh, and he pointed out that a good idea and the human mind act exactly the same as the sperm and the egg. Okay, so after the first good idea gets in, the door shuts and there's a great example of this. So there was this guy called Ron Johnson, right? He was pivotal to the success of the Apple store. He made it the most efficient store. You know, stocks were going through the roof. This guy was revered. Everyone wanted him to get involved in their business. So he was given the same task by J.C. Penney, this store, okay? So he... he come up with this model this great idea entered his head and just like the sperm and the egg the door shut he had a one-track mind so he used the exact same model that worked in the apple store and he tried to use it on jc penny and it flopped so he'd stumbled across this one great idea this new it was a pricing models on like eliminating discounting or something and he'd not realized that apple and JC Penny are two completely different projects that require completely different models to make them successful. It's not just one size fits all. So he'd implemented the same model that he used in the Apple stores into JC Penny and it flopped and he was sacked and the stock price of JC Penny plummeted. It was one of the the biggest blunders in modern business. It was like he was using a map of London to try and find his way around New York. Mm-hmm. So Basically, what happened there is his past successes and his, and his actually how intelligent and magnificent, magnificent he was led to his demise. So he was essentially the best 100-meter sprinter in the world using the same running technique to run a half marathon. It did not work. So I think that on decision-making, we have to be careful that we don't stumble across one fantastic model and think this is going to work in every avenue. We have to remain open-minded. Yeah, I love that. And in Poor Charlie's Almanac, the goal essentially is to build up what he calls a lattice work of mental models. I suppose if you blindfold six people and all give them a separate part of the elephant, one guy's going to think that he's holding a tree one guy's going to think that he's holding a tail. One guy's going to think that he's holding a tusk. And they're all going to have different models. So you're absolutely spot on, Blair. In terms of these mental models and how they've impacted my life, if we keep bringing it back to the lessons which we've learned, 
I think that the most powerful mental model which I'm toying with at the minute is this idea of multiplication by zero. If I say to you, you know, you could have 10 billion times 447,000 and then you times that by zero, what's the answer? The answer is zero, of course. Yes, it's zero. So now let's imagine you are following a whole food plant-based diet you're getting plenty of rest and exercise and then you go out on the weekend and you start doing drugs or let's imagine that you are lifting heavy weights you're sleeping well and then your diet is a mess in all these cases the last number is times in by zero Mm. so like let me give an example from my life i was reading books on philosophy I was doing meaningful things, building meaningful relationships, built, doing things that I cared about. And then I was crippled by a porn addiction and I was just numbed out. That is an example of me times in something by zero. You know, I was reading books on how to get more meaning in my life. I was doing things which give me more meaning. Then I was times in it by zero and taking it all away. Yeah. Are there any examples in your life where you could look back and say, okay, you know, I was times in something by zero? Absolutely. So I think the biggest one for me, you remember me on this podcast from the early days. Uh, The thing I tried to bring was mindfulness and the idea of mental decluttering and that happiness was a choice. And at the time, if you'd ask anybody they'd say I was one of the most miserable people around. Um, And I was, you know, at the time I was looking into like, I was coaching people on how to, you know, eliminate negativity. And I was studying, you know, Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth. I was, you know, I was looking into these mindfulness practices. I was taking mindfulness courses on Udemy. So I knew everything that, you know, a person would have to implement to achieve these things. And then I was just indulging myself in the bad habits and the bad self-talk that just completely rendered all that knowledge useless. So I had all this knowledge of about 10 million and I was timesing it by zero because I was just eliminating it straight away. Oh man, I love that one. I love that one. So I look at like two different things, but I look at first order, second order and third order thinking. So like... Just because I mentioned um, like pornography, let me give you an example of this first order, second order, and third order. Most people would think, okay, you know, I just want to go and watch some pornography and there's just one effect to it, right? I release and then that's it. But what about the second order effects in the sense that, okay, you know, now you've just numbed yourself out or now I feel ashamed. And then what about third order things, you know, down the line? Now, you know, do I have erectile dysfunction? Am I, have I rewired my brain to some sick porn fetish or, you know, which I just can't turn myself on with a partner? I'm like, let's flip down and look at it in like another way, right? Something which I think most people think about is I'm at a store and there's a lift there and there's also a stairs there. First order thinking is, oh, well, I can just get upstairs quicker. But what if I do keep doing that over and over? Then, you know, over the course of 10 years, I've just lost out on maybe thousands and thousands of steps. And Mm. also the third order thinking is, 
now I'm telling myself that I always take the easiest option, right? It's like these things compound. And just look at what we've done, you know, it's like if people want some like networking tips from how we have done this and how we've got these people, a huge thing is like compounding. And something as simple as writing someone a note after a podcast saying, look, thank you so much for your time. You know, I really appreciated it. Or like in my own life, I've had a call or a FaceTime with a friend and I'm just writing them a text after saying, look, I just, I really enjoyed speaking to you tonight. Man, no one else is doing that. You know, like no, no one else is, is doing those things. And then over time, these things, they get, they're going to compound, right? Going back to like Charlie, it's like, Charlie talks about this idea of not trying to pursue excellence, of just avoiding stupidity. And, you know, tying it all up is like the journey I've personally been on since this podcast has, has, has started is trying to not times anything by zero. <laughs> and then just trying to like compound the little things of seeking that asymmetric risk to reward of like reaching out to a guest. Like, I mean, you landed Bruce Buffer. The downsides of that was like a 30 second email, right? You send out to him, and then the upsides are potentially thousands or hundred thousand hits. Mm. There are so many asymmetries, like which we can look for. Think about like driving down the road. I take a two-second look at my phone, and then suddenly I've just plowed into a barrier, or I've just driven someone off the road. You know, it's like <laughs> I really do encourage you know people to look into these because they've helped me become such a a better thinker, such a clearer thinker, and and we link people to Farnham Street and you know mental models by Shane and Peter Hollins and things before. Is there anything else you want to share on mental models, or should we go on to another lesson? I th- I think I got one more mental model sure. anyway that I try and um, stay conscious of, and it's this idea of margin of safety. So the example I'll give to you is if a bridge weighed. So if you looked at if you were about to cross a bridge, for example, and the information on the bridge said it can handle eleven thousand pounds of weight on top of the bridge, you're not going to load the bridge with eleven thousand pounds. You're gonna take a little off the top. You're gonna load it with ten thousand pounds because it'd be a major disaster if you know the bridge wasn't actually that strong and the risk isn't worth the reward of just a little more grind. Um, So this margin of safety idea is all about leaving yourself a little bit more room for mistakes or failure. So the common example was, so if you are, say you have a website and, you know, you're trying to um, come up with leads for sales, and you are writing down all the leads you've gained off this website. So emails of people saying they're interested or booking a consultation. And then you've put an ebook up on the website and someone downloads the ebook. You might not count downloading the ebook as a lead yet until they follow up with an email saying they're interested or, or whatnot. And that's leaving yourself you know, that little room for failure and it's leaving yourself that little bit of a safety net. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it comes back to that thing of, you know, you don't want to count your chickens before they hatch. And that's something I'm always conscious of, even now when I'm booking a guest in and, you know, I've got them over, the, I've almost got them over the line and I can't wait to tell you about it. 
and suddenly I come to you and I say, Joe, 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 I've booked Hugh Jackman. <laughs> and you're all of a sudden, you're, you're thinking, wow, wow. You start putting all these plans in place. You start moving guests around on the podcast. You're emailing guests saying, look, um, we're going to put you out one week later than we scheduled. All our numbers are, are changed. And then suddenly Hugh Jackman ghosts me. <laughs> I never got him over the line, but we didn't plan for that because we loaded the bridge with £10,000 and it collapsed. So I think the margin of safety and leaving yourself that little wiggle room for failure is important as a mental model as well. So, Lewis, you'll testify to this. Prehistorically, I have been notorious for being late to personal engagements, right? I've been absolutely. Sh- <laughs> and this is one of the things I've been absolutely shocking for, turning up to things with maybe a minute or, you know, maybe a minute to spare or being on time. And ever since I started incorporating this, I sort of just started, like, working backwards and thinking, okay, how could I leave myself a margin of safety there? And it's difficult to incorporate at first because, you know, you're so stuck in a habit, right? It's like the the neurons that fire together, they wire together, and myelin it wraps around them, so you've got yourself in a habit. But you can break those habits, you know, the pathways which are continually enforced, they get stronger. The ones which don't, then they decline. I think that, that was one thing which took about that margin of safety. If I was back in university, that would be one thing I'd be doing. You know, I wouldn't be leaving essays and things to the last minute. I'd give myself a margin of safety and trying to self-impose deadlines type of thing. It's such, you're, you're right in what you say. It's, it's such a powerful, such a powerful thinking tool. So yeah, so what we got next, my man? So the last lesson, the last major lesson that I um, was swirling around my mind this morning before I came to this uh, goes back to an episode, dates a while back now, featuring Laura Vanderkam, okay? And she's completely changed the way I perceive time. And this could almost... Well, I guess in a way it is something I've changed my mind about or changed my attitude about in a way. Um, so I time, I, I learned a lot about time and it's something that sticks in my mind after 100 episodes. Okay, so what I picked out from the episode was there's the exact same amount of time in a day no matter what you're doing or no matter what it feels like. There's the exact same amount of time in the day, no matter what you're doing or no matter how it feels, this is it's never, ever going to change, okay? So it's just about how we deal or manage time. If there's a mismatch between expectation and reality, then you're going to feel rushed. You're going to feel behind. You're going to feel like time is slipping away. But if there's a match, if you manage to make a match between your expectations and reality, then you're going to feel fine. The problem is that most people's expectations vastly exceed reality, usually because their expectations are based on everything running smoothly and perfectly, which doesn't happen 99% of the time. So the example I remember Laura giving in the podcast was if you left for work at 5 a.m. one day on your first day and it took you 20 minutes to get there. Now, bear in mind, it was early. There was very little traffic on the road, but it took you 20 minutes. If work the next day starts at 8.30 and you leave the house at 8 a.m., 
you're automatically going to assume that it's going to take you 20 minutes again. But you're not factoring in things like traffic. You're not factoring in the other thing. Because it's human nature to, to not think about time in a logical way. And I think the same applies for how busy we think we are. So you talk to anyone, okay? Anyone that's in a nine-to-five job, or actually anyone in their own business, they tell, we tell ourselves stories like, I'm working around the clock, it's crazy, I'm, I'm doing all this work, I'm swamped. But the reality is we're all overestimating how long our work hours are. It is human nature when it involves something you don't want to do. Work tends to be, so your work day tends to be structured. So, you know, you have a meeting at 8.30, you know you've got to log some calls at 9, you know you've got break at 12, okay? So this, what this does, this structure, it expands the time in your mental accounting, okay? So whereas your leisure time at home has no structure to it. So, you know, I'm not sitting in the house thinking, right, seven o'clock, I've got to watch Gossip Girl. 7.45, I've got to have a glass of Coke. 8.32, I need to go to the bathroom. It doesn't happen like that. And, you know, your time isn't scheduled. And so it seems to go a lot faster. Um, Again, we don't, we also all underestimate how long, we're sleeping. So everyone says, you know, oh, if, you, if you're tired, the natural instinct is to complain about how little sleep you've had. And everyone lies, man. You, you've got more sleep than you think. That's just what people do. And the same applies to this idea of, I don't have enough time. Man, if someone says to me, if I say to someone, why aren't you pursuing this dream of yours? And they say, oh, I don't have the time. And I turn to them and I say, oh, Okay, that's fair enough. Anyway, man, did you see what happened on Game of Thrones last week? They're going to go, yeah, yeah, this happened, Daenerys, this. I'm thinking, well, you know everything about this TV show, and you're complaining to me that you don't have enough time? It's not that you don't have enough time. It's your perception of time, man. And it's this perception of time that I've been trying to to get a grips with lately. And I think the most important takeaway I got from it was perception of time is shaped by exactly what we're doing with it. So if you're doing more memorable things if you're doing intense things if you're risk taking they send they tend to stand out more than things that are routine so you know we say that time speeds up when we're older that's because adult life is routine you commute to work at the same time every day you have lunch time at the same time you go to bed at the same time it's just routine and that stuff doesn't register in the brain and so it just collapses into this sort of memory sinkhole so the one thing I've been trying to do to try and slow down time and enjoy my life more is, well, this is what Laura said anyway. You can try and consciously put things into your life, just little things that are memorable or small risks. So things that are outside your comfort zone. So, you know, I did a whole podcast on this with Ben Aldridge, you know, do things that are uncomfortable, take a cold shower, go for crazy runs, do all these things that are uncomfortable because these things are more likely to be remembered by your brain because they're emotionally intense. So your brain is going to hold on to it. And that, therefore, has the effect of time being slower or, more importantly, you have more time. So I think for me, this lesson all boils down to we have more time than we think. It's just we're perceiving time in the wrong way.
Man, I love, I love, I love, I love that one. I love that one so much. And I think that on the subject of time, so I recently did a podcast, as you know, with David Allen. He wrote the book, Getting Things Done. Uh, I think it's at GTD David on Twitter, right? What an absolute legend. The book has sold millions of copies. He's been on, you know, all the big, big podcasts. Compounding is incredibly powerful but the reason why it's so difficult is because there's not real me- there's not really emotions attached to it in the moment so let's say something like you meditate one day for two minutes then you know you're not all suddenly the buddha you are grateful one night then suddenly you're not walking around like a baron of joy but over time you know, if you're grateful multiple, multiple days, you know, over the course of a year or two years or three years, then suddenly you start to see the good in every day. If you're mindful more and more and more, then suddenly time does slow down. And the number one thing in which I took from David's book, and you know, you know me, I've been notorious for being a bit of a slob. David, <laughs> David calls things which are like unattended. He calls them open loops. So things like, uh, you know, leaving water bottles or not taking towels downstairs. Mm, or... And you're the king of water bottles. <laughs> you have more water bottles in your room that are full than I've ever drank in my life, by the way. <laughs> I'm sorry, David Attenborough, I'm working on it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to cut those down. So yeah, so he talks about these things of like leaving unfinished things so he calls this ambient anxiety this is what david calls ambient anxiety and this is from your brain not closing these loops so one of the things in which david talks about in this book and you're gonna love this and i promise you if you are like me and you have some slob like tendencies this is going to be transformative for you david has what he calls a two minute rule so basically if a task takes you less than two minutes to do, to run that towel downstairs, to take those water bottles to the recycling, to take the McFlurry out of your car or to bring the clothes <laughs> in, then to do it immediately. And again, it's another thing which compounds. I'm looking at my room, my car. I'm telling you these things have never been so clean. And it's because of this rule. And it's like simple things can like compound. And man, I, I love that example that you gave mm. about, about Laura. Seems like that episode you did with Ben has been wonderful for you. I'd mm. love to know in terms of that episode you did with Ben, what difficult things do you think you will be incorporating or mm. are there any which you've already incorporated? Before the podcast with Ben, um, Ben sent me out a copy of the book and... I read it and I learned about, you know, why it's so good for you to expose yourself to adversity, to make yourself be be uncomfortable. And there are 43 ways in the book that he gives, you know, examples of little mental tricks or, you know, tasks that he gives you. You know, they can be as small as um taking a cold shower every morning or they can be as big as running a triathlon there's 43 examples in the book and i do want to make my way through them one day but i remember on the podcast with ben i was talking to him about this and i thought to myself i want to try these things but you know i'll get to them so but i still want to you know 
chuck myself into something really, really uncomfortable. And I thought, you know, I'm a, I like to think I'm a fit man. My, my cardio is pretty good, but that, you know, my usual cardio is built up of kickboxing or boxing or, you know, weight training, for example. I thought was the one thing I hate more, you know, hate doing more than anything on the planet. And that is running. Um, I hate running. I'm not a great runner. Um, I've had you know chest problems my my entire life, which doesn't make it any easier. But at the start of the month, I said to myself, "I'm going to set myself this crazy challenge. Um, I'm going to run." And you know, it might not seem crazy to ultra marathon runners. Um, I know we know a few, um, but I said I'm going to run 200k in a month, which you know ravages out like 7k a day or something. Um, and I'm on these runs, man, and I absolutely hate every second of it. I'm trying to do 50k a week, which I've you know been on was been on track so far, um, and I hate it, man. I hate it. My legs hurt. I don't want to do it. It's boring. It's a mental struggle. It's the fact that you know I got to spend a whole day working and then got to drag myself outside. Mm. But man, it's it's transformational in a way because. You do all these things and you come out the other side and you think, wow, I really didn't want to do that. Or that was really damn hard. But I found something inside of me that I, I, I found something that just wouldn't let me quit. And one of the biggest things I learned from doing it was this idea I've just developed now of feeding off of pain. So I was out for a run the other day and I, you know, I was talking to somebody about my running and I thought I was doing well and they were saying, oh, well, oh, look at this, it's crazy, my friend did this in this time, and I thought, damn, that hurt, I feel like less of a man, so I took the quote, what they said, and I wrote it in the notes on my phone, and I'm out on this run, and I'm starting to get tired, and I think, you know, I'm going to give up at 6k, so I open my notes, and I read the quote to myself about how great this other person was running, and I let my jealousy and my ego take over, and I, it just sent me to another level, man, and you know, I started talking to myself. I was thinking, I was, you know, you're going to give up. You know, you're going to give up at the first sign of being uncomfortable. And it got me through it, man. And I think, you know, when you expose yourself to adversity and you come through the other side, it does something to your mentality, which I cannot testify to enough. It is amazing. And I know when I spoke to Ben, I know I gave him the example of you, man. I said Joe had a problem with putting himself out there. He didn't have a Instagram post for the first three years of having an account. He, you know, he had the same profile picture on Facebook from when he was like 15. He just does not like putting himself out there. He doesn't want anyone to see him. And me and you sat down one day um, and, you know, we come up with this idea that you would do this ballroom dance competition having never put on a pair of dancing shoes in your life. And you came through it, and I came to the event, and I saw you, and I thought, this is a changed man. So I'm going to flip it back to you, and I'm going to say, you were, you made yourself extremely uncomfortable. I, I'm sure the listeners would love to see it, but I'm going to describe it to you. Joe was dressed as a lobster, and he had makeup <laughs> on. Now, this is a man, you know, a few months prior, who, you know, he, he wouldn't want anyone catching him walking around in his Sunday clothes let alone in makeup and a lobster suit, carrying an inflate. I, I can't explain the scene to you, man. 
But what did that experience do for you? What did exposing yourself to adversity and uncomfort do for you? I think that I want to like pick up on what you said in terms of you know you were using that pain and pushing it on. Mm-hmm. And I was reading Will Durant's A Lesson of History and, and he talked about this idea of a nation is born stoic and it dies epicurean. A nation is born stoic and it dies epicurean. So when you think about that, he's implying that you know stoic is someone that reframes things and uses pain to to grow and then you know an epicurean is someone that really just sort of indulges in you know the the day-to-day pleasures of life when i think about that particular experience it was like you it was like a feedback loop it was like you've been afraid to show yourself your entire life like that can't be anymore that can't be anymore Going back to literally the first thing we talked about, Jeff Bezos and his mental model, risk minimization is is how would I feel about this when I'm 80? And that's a perfect example. I don't know how I talk myself into it, but I think that, you know, if, like me, you've regretted not taking enough chances or you feel like you've let yourself down enough times, sooner or later you're going to have to flip that switch on there. And I did, and man, I look back, and that's a that's a deathbed memory. <laughs> Perfect, man. Are there, before we move on to the next portion of the podcast, is there anything else you want to add, or should we dive into some of the fun stuff? Before we delve into that, I want to talk about the last lesson, you know, the, the thing which has been really transformative for me in this journey. What's really been incredible is not so much the lessons and the tools and you know man this tran- all this transformational content which we've brought to the show on a personal note is just seeing how much my own self esteem has risen from doing these things which have made me so uncomfortable right and i would say that self esteem is just the reputation that we acquire with ourselves i got a book by you Nathaniel Brandon's the six pillars of self esteem I'm going to put out there, I think it's one of, if not maybe the best book I've ever read, the most useful. It's absolutely phenomenal. There's a quote in the book in which Brandon says, Nass, if my aim is to prove that I am enough, the project will go on to infinity because the battle was already lost on the day I conceded the issue was debatable. <laughs> For a long time, I was minimizing myself at the cost of others. And now I realize that you can be strong and you can also be compassionate and empathetic and they don't have to come at the cost of one another. And so you're going to say to me, okay, so it's like, what's the lesson that the person here listening to that's, you know, on a run can take and do this? Well, here's one thing which I've been doing, right? I want to maximize how I feel about myself when I'm by myself. So an example, like you mentioned, like a cold shower. I fucking hate taking cold showers. Hmm. But every time I'm in that shower, I'm going, fucking Aljo, you are a bad man. You do as you say you're going to do. You are in this cold shower. Maybe I'm only in there for 20 seconds. Sometimes maybe I don't even put the the water all the way to blistering cold. (laughs) 
But just that act of doing as I say I'm going to do, keeping promises to myself. Mm. Again, I mean, we talked about really a compounding. I can't tell you enough how these things, they compound. Honestly, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Another thing which I would definitely add if someone has tendencies to be economical with the truth. You know, I'm not talking about like being a compulsive liar or anything like that, but but sort of exaggerating stories or things and you you know, okay, there's, there's, this isn't true or it's only a half-truth. Then that is something which definitely is going to make you lose respect for yourself. And it definitely made me lose respect for myself. Every time it happens, it, it does. Someone out there could be listening to this and thinking, well, you know, it's, it's actually pretty tough. I did a podcast with Bill Von Hippel and lying is actually really deeply rooted into our evolution, right? It's it's yeah. it's looked down upon, but I, I promise you, you know, I mean, no one is ever going to go through their life without telling a lie. You know, I, I don't mm. care what anyone says about that. So you say to yourself, okay, it's like, how do I stop that? Well, one thing you can definitely do is this, right? Is just stop trying to tell lies. You won't be good enough at first to keep telling the truth, right? I got this from, from Jordan Peterson's book. Tell the truth or at least don't lie. And if you're just starting off, then just don't lie. Just just send a laughing face or, or just brush over it. And then build your confidence up. And then once you've built enough enoughness, then you can move on to start telling the truth. So I would say that combination really of doing as I say I'm going to do keeping promises to myself like nothing will will lose your self-confidence in you faster than breaking promises to yourself mm-hmm. and uh, and yeah and then you know just not lying essentially and i think yeah. that those things compounded can have massive massive results long term no absolutely man and when you were saying that i i just i just want to back you up there because i think what you said there was so powerful um you know, and you you about telling yourself oh, you're a bad man in the shower, man. I it reminded me of when I was on, you know, these. I went out for a run one day to do five k, and I thought, fuck it, I'm gonna do. And I ended up doing eleven k. And I was, you know, I just passed ten k, and I was running, and everything was hurting. But I was saying to myself out loud, bear in mind, I had headphones in, so people past me could hear me, but I didn't care. I was just going, Lewis, you're a road dog. <laughs> you you are a gangster. Yeah. never piss off a gangster and i just <laughs> man, i had this swagger about me man it was just going out there and, and fulfilling something just for yourself does so much for your self-esteem i can't believe it and on the flip side to that you mentioned about you know lying everyone lies it's like the people who say you take a boxer size class okay and you go around telling people you're an amateur boxer okay <laughs> All that, you know, it might, you know, it might make you think, you know, make you feel like you've got a spring in your step and, you know, people are going to look at you in a different way. But the second you say, you, I'm an amateur boxer, I have fights, I'm this and that, you're admitting to yourself something that deep down you wanted to do, but you didn't have in you to follow through you were just admitting something you were too scared to do you were admitting something you failed on and that has such a damaging um effect on your self-esteem so every time you lie you're just admitting to yourself you you know you're not where you want to be yeah and reinforcing that idea in your own mind of okay i am not enough i have to lie to convince others that i am when deep down i know the truth 
Exactly. Going back to what what Joan Peterson says, you know, if you won't be good enough to tell the truth at first, so the alternative to that is just don't lie, avoiding telling, you know, needless lies because they really do damage you over time. It's like mm-hmm. things can compound either way. So yeah, so I, I would say that they are some of the lessons. Are there any other lessons you want to share, or, or should we delve into some other stuff? I think let's delve into some some other stuff, man. So where do you want to start? Where do you want to kick this off? Uh, let's give people some behind-the-scenes oh, wow. stories. I've been waiting to let these out of the bag. <laughs> right, who would you like to share first? I would love to throw it back to the beginning, or the <laughs> the beta <laughs> version of what I call the Freedom Pack podcast, okay? And, man, I'm throwing it back to the second interview we ever did. Luke we interviewed a boy from around here in Wales called Luke Reese. Uh, he's a motivational speaker, um, lovely guy, lovely guy. Um, and Luke, he wasn't telling any lies. He wasn't pretending to be something he's not at the time. Man, I remember telling Luke, Luke, you know, we're setting up the studio now. Um, I had you ring him on the phone and keep him occupied because my laptop was doing an update <laughs> in the back seat of your car in Tesco car park and the update was taking so long and I was panicking so it was a second interview ever and I'm saying Joe you need to stall in my laptop's doing an update I don't know what's happening bear in mind I'm, I'm crouched on all fours in the back seat of your car while we're parked around the back of Tesco and you keep him on the phone, man. You're saying, Luke, we're just getting the studio set up now. <laughs> the studio, you know. And um, we finally get on the interview and everything's going fine. Luke's none the wiser, you know. He just thinks it's a, it's a great interview, great podcast. Then I remember it was dark. We see some bright lights in the distance. <laughs> and they start getting brighter and they start getting bigger. Two Fiat 500s pull up right behind us and out get about, it must have been a clown car because I swear about 50 kids jumped out of those cars. <laughs> they were running around, they were throwing bottles, they were on their bikes doing wheelies, they were shouting and screaming. And I remember Luke is talking away on the phone. <laughs> and you look at me and your eyes just turn into saucers. We're like, we just look like deers in the headlights. It's like our, our pants, we've been caught with our pants down. And I say, we've got to do something. It's too loud. He's going to, you know. And you say, Luke, 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 I'm going to have to stop you there. Is it okay if we call you back in two minutes? Our microphone has just fallen out of the stand in the studio. <laughs> he says, absolutely. We put the phone down. You knock the car into reverse, whip out of there, and we head over to the other side of Tesco car park where it's a bit quieter. Um, we jump back on the call and we see her out. But, man, it was so funny to look back now and look at those problems that were so avoidable. Man, to think, right, we were recording. I mean, this was the second podcast. I mean, we were having such terrible trouble trying to get guests on. We we land Luke Reese. I mean, Luke is a is a great guy. Uh, you know, doesn't live too far away from us. 
So there we are, right? In Tesco car park. It's a Wednesday night. We're, we're sat this like eight o'clock. We're recording with him. We're, we're 15 minutes into the interview. He thinks we're set up in you know, a multi-million pound studio. All of a sudden, these two cars of literally about 16, 17-year-old kids, like you said, the crusty, the car clowns, they surround us either side and they start playing football in front of us, making a terrible match. We're looking at each other like, what the hell is going on? Oh, man. But yeah, like, like I suppose, like we said at the start, we probably made every mistake. Every mistake in the book, man. Every mistake in the book. And that was a massive learning curve because from that episode onwards, you convinced your parents to let us use their house every time from after that. So there was a lesson learned there, man. There was a lesson learned there. Absolutely. Um, a funny story, man. I still laugh about it to this day. Give us another one. Give us another behind-the-scenes funny story that you remember from the last 100 episodes. Well, I think that an unforgettable one is none other than Mr. 48 Laws of Power himself, Robert Green. <laughs> so I remember this. Honestly, I remember so vividly. We'd landed this interview with Robert. Robert is he's a massive, massive name. I mean, he opens all kinds of doors. We were supposed to go live with him at, I think it was 9.30pm UK time. It was like half past one his time. It was a real late... Might have even been later, because oh, yeah. I remember everyone was in bed. It was dark. It was late. Yeah, it was. It was we were supposed to go live 2pm for Robert's time, 10pm our time. Yeah. Right, so 10pm comes, there's no answer. I was absolutely devastated. You were in bits. You were in bits. Yeah, I was in bits. I'd smashed out his book, The Laws of Human Nature, which is, you know, longer than the Bible. It's, you know, a great book, but, uh, you know, it's obviously a mass, uh, you know, a long read. I'd gone through all his interviews. I'd probably put about 20, 30 hours of research into that interview. And, you know, the, the, there's no answer from him. It got to a stage where you were just sitting there. I was lying on my You'd sofa. Given up. I'd given up. About 30 minutes had gone by. There's no sign of him. And then suddenly I can just hear you going, hello, Robert? Hello, Robert, it's Lewis. <laughs> and I, remember, I remember you jump off the sofa, come running into the kitchen where we were set up. You grab the headphones and go, hello, Robert, hello, it's Joe. I'm calling from South Wales, how are you? <laughs> and then Robert goes, oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway so we start cracking on with this interview with robert and it was probably only about 20 25 minutes there's a good flow going to the interview real good stuff we've just touched on a lifetime versus dead time we're really getting into the heart of his book then all of a sudden all we can hear is is the phone ringing in the background and robert's going oh we'll, we'll just let that one you know ring out so about 20 minutes later robert's talking about the power of emotions and how we're irrational he's gone off on one of these incredible tangents he's wordsmithed together phenomenal paragraphs which are you know bite worthy like he does <laughs> and then the phone rings again and we we're talking about emotions and robert goes oh this phone is making me emotional <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so robert picks up this phone and he's like hello hello and then his PA or his or his assistant's on the other line. And Robert's going, look, I'm in an interview. Call me back in an hour. 
and the guy tries to keep him talking. <laughs> and then Robert, bear in mind, the guy who's literally wrote books about power and, and seduction and dark sides of human nature. And then Robert's like, look, I'm in an interview and slams the phone down on him. <laughs> Man, that was literally like a surreal moment. It was one of those ones where I was thinking to myself, I was like, is this staged? Is this like what Robert does in all his interviews? Yeah. Is like a mind game tactic. <laughs> and I, I rem- just on the subject of Robert Green, I remember because I sat there and I called his Skype maybe 50 times when he didn't pick up. And I remember we were talking about 20 minutes into the podcast. And still to this day, I never know if he was taking a dig at me or not. But he was saying, oh, and you've got, you know, I hate people that pester you with calls. <laughs> and I was like, is Robert, is he using one of his laws? Is he putting me down? Man, what a time. Is there anything else that sticks out in your mind now? I think that uh, Patrick bet David the first time. Oh, so, wow. So we'd probably done about 25 episodes by this point. Somehow we land Patrick bet David. Now, give a bit of a backstory. I think it was you that sent an email out to him. And about two or three weeks goes by, and uh, I was just browsing through our emails one day, and I, and I see a just happened to click in our spam folder, and there was an email from his assistant saying, like, yeah, we'd be happy to set this up. So I'm like, oh, my God. You know, he's a massive name. He's got a massive like, name. Three million. Yeah, three and a half million. Considering you know. where we were at the time as well, where we'd interviewed, you know, nobody of any notoriety, let's be honest. Yeah, you know, a 400 million plus net worth. I mean, you just type in entrepreneur on, on YouTube and this guy is everywhere. Mm. So this was a, a massive name for us, a name which would open, you know, enormous doors. I reach out to Patrick. I say, yeah, perfect. You know, let's, let's arrange a time. Fortunately, it didn't fall through. I get Patrick on Skype. He obviously does plenty of these podcasts. And for some reason, and I think it's to do with Skype, and how they process audio but everything that we were talking about there was just a, a massive echo so basically the audio was unusable like everything patrick said was basically repeated it was there was an echo which followed it i recorded an hour of it i remember leaving that interview and when we we first realized that that wouldn't go out oh that was it was devastating like a kick in the nuts but like we talked about earlier, we used that to power, you know. I mm. mean, we rebuilt the relationship with Patrick. Patrick, we've got an episode recorded. That will go live the next one after this one is released. Exactly. Um, part two, which is actually part one. <laughs> yeah, part two, which is actually part one. And that gave birth to what then become the bin. <laughs> so, Lewis, the bin. the bin, yeah. So in the heat of, you know... Out, you know, of us being so upset, we decided, well, okay, we only want to put top quality content out. Like, if a guest is going to come on and, and be overly commercial and every answer is about, you know, their, their book or or if they turn up late, you know, massively late and we can't do the interview, then they enter what the first Patrick episode did and that's called The Bin. Bin. The Bin. And the Bin is my favorite favorite thing man because we've just developed this philosophy now where i don't care if you've got three million 
followers. I don't care if you've got 10 million followers. If you're not going to give transformational content or if you want to come on and sell crap to our audience, there's only one place you're going to end up and it's the bin. And let me tell everyone listening now, the bin is it's not a place of scarcity. There are many bins <laughs> in the <laughs> There are names that have been in the bin for a long time. And you wouldn't believe me if I told you some of the names that are in the bin. You'd think I was crazy for not pulling them out and getting the um the clickbait and the and the, the, the clicks off their off their name. But again, that's just something we live by. If you know, if you don't produce the content, I don't care who you are, you end up in the bin. You end up and in the bin, yeah. And what do we always say? You'll never be lonely. There's plenty <laughs> of company in the bin. <laughs> this is a commitment which we made, right? And I remember before I released the Abigail Harrison episode, we had a few episodes which we could have put out with, you know, fairly sizable names, but they come on and you know, and they treated us like shit or or you know, they'd had no respect or they, you know, t- turned up massively late. Another mental model concept is signal versus noise, right? There's so much noise out there and we're looking for the signals, what will actually transform people. And if all they give us is noise, you know, if if content isn't gonna enlighten people and we feel as if, you know, we look at this objectively because whether it's a good or a bad interview, we take responsibility for that. But if, you know, we feel as if we've done the best and the people have turned up massively late and the episode is only 25 or 30 minutes or we're just not going to put it out there. We're not going to dampen our brand if it's not top quality content. Then that's that's a decision we're going to make. And we hope that that makes you guys trust us more knowing that what we put out we truly believe that there is transformational content. Mm. So absolutely. Before you know, we before we move on to the next stage, you know, there's a man that we mentioned right at the top of this call, and you know, this wasn't a mistake or a blunder or anything. I and it's not really behind the scenes, but I just got to bring it up again because when you're doing an interview and something makes you laugh, man, it is so hard to remain serious um especially in the topic that is serious <laughs> so i want to throw it back to nick yaris and for anyone listening who find you know wants to go back and listen to this episode and listen to this point and try and see if you can maybe hear me and joe sniggering in the background um <laughs> nick yaris was talking about what it was about what it was like in prison um on death row and the fact that he used to have to fight people the guards man this is so serious and it's not a laughing matter but you know the guards would make them fight for for fun (laughs) and he's talking he is so emotional man he's talking about you know sometimes you're gonna beat the crap beat into you and um God bless him. I love Nick. So this is, I just want to talk about this because it was funny. Talked about all this seriousness about, you know, being forced to fight like animals. And it gives such an emotional account. And please go back and listen to the episode because Joe follows this emotional account with, Nick, did you win any of the fights? (laughs) And man, I 
my heart froze, okay? Because a lot of people would have been insulted. Man, this guy just poured his heart out about this trauma. And Joe wants to know his record, okay? <laughs> and bear in mind, my heart is, is frozen. I thought, man, he's going to shut the interview down. And he goes, oh, boys, you're just not getting it. And I thought, uh-oh, he's fuming. He's thinking, these guys don't understand me. I'm thinking, he's going to say, you don't get it. You don't get how serious it is. He goes, you just don't get it. I never even went down. <laughs> I never lost. I never went down. My man no. said he never even got put down. Oh, trust me, go back and listen to the episode and just listen to the serious tone. And Joe's ridiculous question. And you can almost hear the tension and fear radiating from me. Uh, it's just one of the times I'll just remember. It's a really, really funny time on an interview that was really serious. Man. <laughs> oh, man, I love it. I still remember it clearly to this day. So one of my last questions to you, Lewis, is since we started this show, I know personally from knowing you and knowing myself that we really have made war with a multitude of counsellors. We've been in the trenches. I think there's real power in that. So I want to know, what have you changed your mind about since the show started? I have changed my mind about the way I want to live my life. I <clears throat> used to be in a frame of mind before we started this podcast and you, you can testify to this because, God, man, since we were young, we always tried to come up with money-making business schemes. Um, I thought happiness would come from having a lot of money, selling a lot of things, and just living a financially free life, <clears throat> whatever that cost. I always look for a gap in the market or market needs is why I was chasing. And you talk to a lot of the people that we've talked to on the podcast and they talk about the fact that money will always be a byproduct of, or can be a byproduct of pursuing meaning and passion. And, you know, there will come a time where your passion al aligns with monetization. But I changed my mind about the way in which I pursued that. When I look at this podcast now, it's my baby. It's my, you know, it's my one thing in this world that I am most proud of. I am proud of the fact that my only goal when interviewing people is to get the information from the people who have it and give it to the people who need it. I don't think about money. I don't think about monetization or business when I think of this podcast. I think about meaning. I think about every time I hang up a call about what that's done for me as a person, what that's done for my soul. Every time I pu publish an episode on a Monday morning, I don't think about traction so to speak i think about how that has impacted somebody's life and 
I think the bit that is the biggest thing I've changed my mind about, and that in this life, the best thing you can do is be happy. The world is negative enough and will beat you to your knees. Find something you are passionate about. Find something that sets your soul on fire. Find something that brings you meaning. That doesn't have to be a massive thing. That doesn't have to be a podcast. You can be, you know, you can work a nine-to-five job in a care home and that bring you the most meaning in the world. You can work in a school and know you're, you know, touching these children's lives and, you know, influencing their futures and that can be everything to you. Just love what you do and then do what you will. Wow. I love that, man. And so I posed the same question to you, my man. What, in a hundred episodes, what have you changed your mind about? The amount of sponsorship requests. I mean, I can think of, you know, just a number of them off the top of my head, which we could have monetized, which we could have put mid-roll ads in, which, in my opinion, absolutely kill the show. I don't want to be driving my car on a long ride and suddenly there's a great conversation going on. I'm listening about butcher box or athletic greens <laughs> or, you know, any of these. I, I, um, and part of that is that they've been done really, which, which we think could benefit you guys. You know, if, if there was, we'd consider bringing them on. But, but the other thing in which I, I, I would add is what I love about it is that you've sort of given yourself like this ability to, appreciate the positive things in your life and you've also given yourself the ability for continuous improvement and when you think about that the ability to appreciate what you have and to also want more they're like two contradictory ideas right it's like asking yourself what's good in my life and then also what else needs to be done i think we are doing here and i think that we really are making a difference and i couldn't be any prouder of this you know, this is our baby, man. I'm so excited for where this is going to go, my brother. 100 episodes in. What do you want in the next 100, man? Where do you want this to be? What do you want from the next 100 episodes? When we sit here again on episode 200, where do you, you know, where do you see this being? Where do you see this? What do you see it doing for you as a person by then? What do you want out of this? I've had so much transformation from this so far, and I really want more transformation, not just for myself, but for other people. You mm-hmm. know, like, I can't tell you, like, how much we really do want to transform lives. This is what drives us. Mm-hmm. I hope that in a 100 episodes' time, we have more people telling us, you know, that was a life-changing episode. I mean, I mean, we, we do get a lot of those messages. That was a life-changing episode. That meant so much to me. Uh, because of you, I started implying this tool because of you, uh, because of that episode, I got a toxic relationship or I didn't give up uh, on love or, you know, I'm following my passion or I quit that toxic job, you know, that toxic job. Mm -hmm. For me, that's what I want more. I want more of helping other people. You know, we've, we've helped ourselves. We've put ourselves in great positions we've built up such a platform and I want to give back more. It really does drive Mm. me. I think another thing that I'm excited about in the next hundred episodes, and 
it's been exactly the same of what I've got from this these first hundred episodes, man. I spent oh god, how much do I spend? Like you spend what twenty to thirty grand on a three year course in university, mm-hmm. man. I've I we spent well hardly anything really producing this podcast, and I'm getting lectured by Harvard professors. <laughs> I am getting lectured by you know some of the biggest psychologists in the world, some of the most successful people in the world. I've learned more in a hundred episodes than I ever learned in a university lecture. So this for me is the bigger learning resource is the ultimate tool this is this is this is the university of life for me man i I love this Mm. i love it man i love it yeah so where were we to what what was next oh yeah something i've changed my mind about you know lou this was a tough one for me man because there's so much that i've changed my mind about i do live by that saying strong ties loosely held You've got to have strong opinions about the world, but also be very open to changing them. I know that Sad Guru says that every time we have a belief and we refuse to change it, a part of ourselves dies. And, you know, I think that there is some sense in that. Strong ties loosely held. But I'm going to surprise you with this one, Lewis. And I've actually changed my mind about falling in love. Wow. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm excited. So. I'll give you like some backstory. So it's like I came out of a relationship. I think that the concept of like falling in love, right? I mean, just look at the title of it. It's not called rising in love. It's called falling in love. There is an implication in there that there's going to be a fall. There's an implication that, you know, you surrender to someone else. You give them the power to to ruin you, essentially. Like you are literally putting, you know, your complete life into their hands, more or less. They have that ability to ruin you. And that concept I toyed with and I thought, nah, you know, I'm just going to date or be in opportunistic situations. I thought, ah, well, you know, love the concept. I thought it's, 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 it's overrated anyway, you know. I mean, I can get meaning from other areas. I'll just date casually or just go for hookups and, and never really invest too much. And I toyed with that idea for some time. I think that that's wrong for a number of reasons. I know that Alan Watts says that the concept of love is madness. But he argues that there's actually sanity in the madness. And and I think I agree with him in the sense that, in my opinion, to deny love, to deny another into your life because of selfish reasons, I would posit that that is actually the denial of life itself and i really do think that if there are people listening to this or you know they've come out of a bad breakup and they've gone i'm never going to love again i'm never gonna let someone else in i would seriously consider or suggest that you reconsider that stance and I know that it's scary, and I know that it involves a risk. Maybe, you know, I'll be destroyed in another relationship, and I'll think, nah, you know, that's not for me. But I do truly believe that there is sanity in the madness, and I do think that it is maybe the most meaningful thing that we can do in this life. 
And I think, you know, on that subject, it's just like Bronny Way said on uh, on this podcast, let yourself be surprised. When life is feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. Um, so, yeah, so that would be one thing I've changed my mind about. Let me ask you another question. So we've done, okay. fucking hell, man, 140 plus interviews. Um <laughs> You know, just something that's we've we've asked pretty much every guest for book mm. recommendations. We read an absurd mm. amount of books. Right now, I ask you, the best books that you've read over the last or since the podcast started. Wow. Um, okay, so the first book um, would be. It wasn't because of any guest. It was because of a host. We were on our trip to Nepal. We were sat in the Fuji Hotel in Kathmandu. <laughs> and I was, man, I, I, we did a lot of deep talking on that trip. I think we really let our guards down. And I told you how I've always struggled with anxiety. I've always struggled with social situations man you know firsthand you know being my best friend for so many years you've seen me in social situations i always crumbled um or i shied away and you said it just so happens i've got the perfect book in my bag that i think is going to change your life and at the time i thought well yeah i'll give it a shot i'm i'm in Catman and do i got nothing else to do right now i'll give her a shot so you pull out dale carnegie's how to win friends and influence people the first night i started reading that book i remember you came out of the shower and i had my notes open and the book in my other hand you said what are you doing so i'm taking notes you said, on what? I said, on this book. I said, it's full of gold. <laughs> and you said, well, what, what notes have you got? So I started reading out the notes. And you said, that's that's great, that's great. You know, you've got all these notes, you've got all these tools. And I remember thinking, that's not enough. I can't just know this stuff. I can't go back to the whole, you know, the thing we talked about, times in it by zero. I can't learn all these things and then not act on them i can't times this by zero i've got times it by something and we just so happened to meet a lot of people that we were on on the uh, trip with and i started you know using some of the tactics in the book on them you know i started being interested not interesting i started asking the right questions i started giving the right body language I started saying the you know the sweetest sounding word in any language, which is somebody's name. I started using all these tactics, and man, I was shocked at the relationships I built on that trip. Mm. And I still do it today, man. So the the lessons I learned in that book were phenomenal, and I think that would be the first book I go to when I say a book that's greatly impacted my life. Um, since starting this podcast so if i flipped it to you let's go one for one give me a book of yours well i already mentioned 
uh, Nathaniel Brandon, the six pillars of self-esteem. And look, in my opinion, I would have every person at school read that book. It is so utterly transformational. Um, so yeah, so I would I would suggest Brandon. But if I've already given that one, and the next one I would say, and it's an expensive book. It did cost me about fifty pound, but worth every penny and that is seeking wisdom from darwin to munger by peter bevelin Mm -hmm. and basically the premise of this book is that it basically it gives you guidelines to better thinking right and i realized that richard thaler in his book nudge he paints this great picture about how we're so irrational like we think that we're rational people and you know, I remember we did our interview with Robert, and he was going, "Oh, you know, we're deeply irrational people." And I thought, "What? <laughs> Don't be so silly, Robert. You know, I'm a rational man." But I mean, but when you consider the list of cognitive biases which we have, I mean, we're not right. So I would say, definitely, without a doubt, that Peter Bevelin seeking wisdom from Darwin to Munger. I mean, that was a huge eye opener for me. Mm. Okay, so one for one, I can offer up another one. Uh-huh. And that is by a, a man that, you know, since being immersed in this world of personal development, that has done a lot for me personally. And that is the legendary Bob Proctor. And the book is called You Were Born Rich. Now, this book is different and had a big impact on me in the sense that the book isn't like most personal development books that tell you how to get things how to go out and get things how to change who you are the book really focuses about rearranging the pieces that are already there Um, it teaches us that just like the title says we were born rich everything is already there it's just about you know, bringing that out of us or rearranging the pieces. And it really, you know, made me feel a lot better about my self-esteem and really look at myself for who I am, not, you know, who I'm not. So I think that book did a lot for me in that regard. So it's You Were Born Rich by Bob Proctor. So in this game of book tennis, I return the ball back to you. (laughs) I love it. And I would say... Uh, so the ones I've suggested so far in this episode, I've suggested Brand- Nathaniel Brandon, The Six Pills of Self-Esteem, which I think is a must-read. Peter Bevelin, Seeking Wisdom, From Darwin to Munger. And I'm going to give a slightly different take on this. And I'm going to offer up Already Free by Bruce Tift. And the tagline of the book I got by here is, Buddhism meets psychotherapy on the path of liberation. Mm. And it's basically combining Eastern and Western philosophy. So typically in the West through psychotherapy, it's always about like improving one's life, right? It's about building habits, uh, you know, overcoming some type of event, performing better at work. Whereas the Eastern traditions, Buddhism, is typically about how we relate to experiences, And I found that the combination of two, I mean, I read this book and I genuinely think that for about two and a half weeks after I read it, I 
it was probably the most peace I've ever felt in my life. Um, oh. What a phenomenal read, and it doesn't cost too much. Uh, I definitely would recognize that. So I've thrown the ball up. I've hit it back. What do you got for me? So I've got two more books Go in this game of, of tennis. Now just give and... me a double. Give me a double. Smash them out. Oh, wow. Okay. I think the first one for me is... I'm going to mix it up a bit because I could list, you know, a million personal development books. But I'm going to mention someone who's been on this podcast, and that is Heather Morris. She wrote The Tattooist of Auschwitz, and that is a a fiction book based on historical fact or the storytelling of someone. And, you know, it tells the story of Lael Sokolov, who, Lali Sokolov, who was a um, prisoner in Auschwitz who took on the role of the tattooer, who, you know, through all this hardship and unfathomable, um, you know, pain and circumstance, managed to find something beautiful, which was love. And what that taught me is that no matter what hardship you're facing in life, no matter what life throws at you, every human nature will always shine through. Nothing can defeat human nature. And, you know, things like love, for example, are always going to be there. And it's just about, back to what Nick Yara said, man, it's just about how you perceive things in the moment. So that would be one. And the, the last one um, I want to talk about is Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Um, this was, you know, fantastic for me. Um, and what I loved about this book is it's 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 almost a textbook, man. I think, you know, in the introduction, uh, he says you're not allowed to read more than a chapter a day because you need to let the information sink and you need to reflect on the information. And it taught me so much about you know defeat and failure about you know one of the most common reasons for failure is the habit of quitting at the first sign of defeat it talks about you know being wary of being three feet from gold you know often a person quits as soon as they meet defeat when they're merely you know three uh, three feet away from mining from gold um it taught me about limitations and you know how how to to view the impossible and, and the possible, and not to you know limit anything by my own existing impressions and beliefs, and just open my mind up, man. So I think "Think and Grow Rich" by Napoleon Hill is my last one. So if you've got to add, my friend, add him away. Some classics. Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. To think, I mean, that book was written, I want to say, in the 1930s, which is just just crazy, you know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so the last two I would add, I want to add um, Daring Greatly by Brene Brown, which, mm. I mean, what a fantastic book on vulnerability, um, which I think, you know, is, is just also needed. I would add Grit by Angela Duckworth, 
um mm. you know and if you're listening angela come on the show <laughs> <laughs> i would add and bob proctor while you're at it. oh yeah bob proctor come on the show <laughs> <laughs> i would add getting things done by uh david allen which is a fantastic book um and then the last one i would add is i would add uh shortness of life but seneca seneca on the shortness of life which i think is such a great book in terms of just making you realize that there's so much noise around in in modern life right i mean people seem to be so unhappy i mean i'm not sure if you saw this the other day but the the world happiness meter it reached an all-time low Mm. um and I just think that there's so much out there. Social media is causing us misery. Um, you know, the the foods which we put in our body, I, I mean, you just got to walk through a supermarket. I mean, high fructose syrup in so many different foods. I mean, I don't even want to call them food. Like, like, like food is supposed to rot. Right? And if it doesn't, you should be disturbed. And I, I, I truly do think as well, you know, that the, the cards are stacked against us. So, I would say, like, looking at the end and working your way backwards, like what Covey says, Stephen Covey, begin with the end in mind. I think that they would be some recommendations. Peter Bevlin, Nathaniel Brandon, Angela Duckworth's Grit, David Allen, Brene Brown's uh, Vulnerability, Bruce Tifts, Already Free, and uh, then Seneca on A Shortness of Life. I would say that they are the best books that I have read since this podcast to start and i do think they will stand the test of time like like we mentioned that lindy effect earlier um mm. so lewis my man i mean we had we had two hours five minutes deep by her i mean i <laughs> I, I really do you know appreciate the time so i, I want to know what would your message be to the people that have supported us so far man um it's just gratitude from my end um you know thank you for every listen every email every comment thank you for allowing me to live out my dream uh interviewing my heroes and some of the most amazing conversations i've ever had in my life you know we talked about decision making today uh the decision to start this podcast best decision i've ever made my life so on to you sir yeah i would just say simply thank you and stay tuned there are big things coming (laughs) i promise so guys joe yes before i let you go sure i'm gonna pitch you a scenario (laughs) yeah in which every person on the planet is tuned into the same frequency Mm-hmm. you're given the opportunity to broadcast a message and i'll answer this question too okay what would joe's message to the world be gratitude is the antidote to hopelessness wow what about you <clears throat> love and do what you will wow <laughs> I love it man it's crazy to think how many people we've asked that question to <laughs> but yeah but my man such a pleasure this my Freedom Pack family is episode 100 stay tuned there's gonna be this podcast will run until 
you know, let's get it up to at least episode a thousand. Mm. Uh, there are big, big things coming. I promise you. I promise you. Just keep an eye. Just keep an eye on the people going to be coming out soon. I mean, you'll be very, very pleasantly surprised. Guys, this is episode 100. Thank you so much. Please hit that like, subscribe, leave us an iTunes rating if you feel like we deserve it. And yeah, thank you so much for the time. And we will see you for 101.